Okay, well, this uh, this week we're going to continue the foundation, the refining fire foundation of the Bible. And uh, last time that I taught on this foundation, we talked about uh, maybe some history of the Bible, how we got the English translations. Uh, does anyone remember the uh, the main guy who was the first one to lead a group of people into translating the Bible into English? Yes. John Wycliffe, that's right. And he translated the Bible from what language into English? Latin, that's right. Latin Vulgate, very good. Now, who was uh, another man who kind of followed in Wycliffe's footsteps about a century later who knew eight languages fluently? William Tyndale, very good, very good. And he was the first one to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English, Okay. We know that uh, it cost his life, it cost him his life to do that. And that if you were found with a Tyndale Bible in your house, it cost you and your family their life as well. Um, and even John Wycliffe, they, the Catholic Church had this kind of practice that if they, you know, if they declared you a her- heretic after you had died, they dug up your bones, they burned them to ashes and threw them in the waters, that that did anything, you know, that that was going to harm anything to you. You know, you're, you're already, your body is gone. It's your, your, you're departed from your body, and and to me, it's going to be a little cooler to see all those particles come back together when God gets you know with this uh, body back together. Um, do you remember anything else we talked about last time when it comes to the Bible? Yeah, Joshua. That's right. Now, now, why is it called the King James Bible? That's right. He allowed them to write it without threat of any kind of injury to them. That's right. No persecution to them. Uh, it's also called the authorized version. I think we'll call it that. Uh, what else do you remember from last time? Best-selling book of all time. That's right. Right. Amen. Very good. It's good to have those uh, facts on hand. Um, Anything else? We talked about manuscripts a little bit, and towards the end we got kind of into it during the question and answer time. Does anyone remember anything about that particularly? Nobody? Right, right. There's definitely a lot more uh, Greek manuscripts or manuscripts for the New Testament than there are any other book in antiquity, in history, and it's not even close. It's not even close. And so you can see the bias people have in saying, well, the Bible is not trustworthy, but they'll teach, you know, Homer's Iliad in college. They'll teach Plato and they'll teach Aristotle and say, well, this is what Aristotle actually wrote. This is what Plato actually wrote. This is what Homer actually wrote. And they'll treat it as if it's re- reliable and trustworthy. But when it comes to the Bible, it has so much more manuscripts, so much closer to his actual uh, original time of writing it. They say, oh, no, that's, that's, that's not true. We can't trust that. So you see a bias there. The people don't want to trust it. Not that it's not trustworthy, but they simply don't want to trust it. Because what does it say about them? What does it say about them? What does it say about God? What does it say about their future? What God expects out of them? It goes back to Romans 1. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're willfully ignorant. They don't want it to be true. Okay, starting today and then next week, uh, you know, this is possibly going to be some of the most important things you're going to learn because when it comes to the last days, which I believe we're either in or entering into, 
there's lots of apostasy. Okay, the Bible guarantees this. Lots of false prophets, lots of false doctrine. Um, you know, the Spirit expressly says in latter times some will depart from the faith, given He's the doctrines of demons. Okay, so if we're in the latter times, I believe we are. There's lots of doctrines of demons out there. So today, starting today, and, and, and hopefully finishing up next time, it may take two more times, but hopefully finish up next time, we're going to talk about how to study your Bible. Okay, you know, there's a group of people in the Bible from Berea who are called Bereans. Okay, not the ones who are in Kentucky. They're definitely not Bereans uh, up in the College of Berea up there. Um, but the Bereans were considered noble in Paul's sight because when he taught them the scriptures, they sought out to see if what he was saying was true. Okay, and in these last days, one of the most important things you can know how to do properly is to know how to study the Word of God. Okay. And of course, once you know how to study the Word of God properly, is to actually do it. You know, if you, if you know how to do it, but you don't actually do it, it's not going to do you any good. Just wasted information. Okay? Uh, and in studying your Bible, mu- one must know how to properly interpret it. Now, this is, I'm going to give you a, a kind of a big word here. It's called hermeneutics. Okay? That's spelled H E R M E N E U. T-I-C-S, hermeneutics, okay? Um, kind of a fancy word. It comes from a Greek word that's transliterated from the Greek word. It simply means this. Principles used in properly interpreting and understanding the scriptures, okay? Principles used in properly interpreting and understanding the scriptures. In 2 Timothy 2.15... Uh, possibly explains what it is from a Bible verse better than any other Bible verse. It says this, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, If you could define hermeneutics, which is properly interpreting the Bible, uh, by a Bible verse, this would be the verse. 2 Timothy 2.15. Once again, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It comes, hermeneutics comes from the Greek word hermeneia, which means to interpret, explain, expound. Okay, so it's a transliteration of a Greek word. Um, let's look at one, one place that's found in the Bible, this Greek word hermeneia. It's found in Luke 24. And verse 27. This is after Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, he's on the way to Emmaus with those two disciples. And uh, we'll start in uh, verse 25. Jesus speaking here of Luke 24. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, talking to these two disciples now, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself engaged in hermeneutics. That word expounded there is a Greek word hermeneia. Jesus engaged in it. You need to engage in it. Okay, You need to properly interpret the word of God. Lest we become 
like the ones Peter talks about in Second Peter and chapter three and verse sixteen. Uh, in verse fourteen of Second Peter three, it says, "Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless." And consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. We don't want to be like those people. We don't want to twist. We don't want to be unstable and, uh, and untaught. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. Because if you twist the scriptures, it'll twist your life. It could cost you your soul in the end. Because these people are here, they twist it to their own destruction. Okay, so we don't want to do that. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. We want to interpret it properly and use hermeneutics properly. The Greek God... The question, Malachi? How do you, how do you spell that word again? Hermeneutics? Yeah. It's spelled H E R. M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. The Greek god Hermes, of course we know he's not a god, he doesn't exist, but in the Greek, uh, the Greek polytheistic system of many gods, the Greek god Hermes was the messenger of the gods. Okay? He was like the go-between between the gods, the divine, and the mortal, the gods and the people. So he, he explained the will of the gods to the people. And so engaging in hermeneutics, you're doing that. You're helping yourself and others you you may share these truths with to understand what God is saying through his word to you and to other people. Okay. Paul, in, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 12, um, where him, him and Barnabas are together, and the people, after I think after a miracle was done, they they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. And uh, in Acts fourteen and verse twelve, it says, "And Barnabas they called Zeus, who is the, the chief of the gods." Okay, and Paul they called Hermes. Well, why? Because he was the chief speaker. Okay, so Hermes he was a chief speaker for the rest of the gods to the people. And so when you learn to understand the scriptures properly hermeneutics, you can become a speaker of the word of God, properly speaking it to other people, so they can understand what God requires of them, how God views them, what's going to happen in the future, what's happened in the past, God's character, his attributes, what he's like. You can explain these things to people because you're engaging in hermeneutics. You can become a chief speaker of the word of God. So God's word was, was written uh, to us, okay, so when God, when God was having the word of God inspired, remember we talked about the, what inspiration means and blowing through a, a trumpet or a flute and, and how not, not exactly everything that's said in the Bible is thus saith the Lord, but the writing of it is the inspire, inspiration, the graphe, the writing of it is inspired. And so, um, God, when he had it inspired, he had you in mind. This, this God that we know, who knows the future, he had you in mind, okay? But, we must not skip over a very important step. The Word of God wasn't written directly to the saints in breeding. Okay? It wasn't written directly to the saints in Fayetteville, or Alabama, or California. 
It was written directly to a certain group of people at that point in time. Okay? So even though God had us in mind, he's writing to them. And so he's writing, well, he's actually writing to us, but through writing to them. And that little through part is where hermeneutics comes into play. Okay? So when Paul wrote to the saints at Thessalonica, or the saints at Corinth, or the church of God in, uh, in Galatians, okay, or Ephesus, wherever it may be that Paul's writing to, he's actually writing to them. But because God is the inspiration behind it, he did have us in mind. So the through part, where it gets from them to you, that's where harmonies come into play. Okay, that's where they come into play. Okay? All right, so the scriptures, and, and behind hermeneutics, we have to understand the scriptures are understandable. There's clarity. There's clearness. This is often called in theological or, or more heady circles the perspicuity of scripture. Okay, Perspicuity of scripture. It's hard to even say that word. I can spell it for you if you want me to. It's P-E-R-S-P-I. C-U-I-T-Y, the perspicuity of scripture, of scripture. See, I'm having a hard time saying it myself. But the point is, even though it's hard to say this word, the scriptures are, are, are understandable, there's clarity, there's clearness when it comes to them. Now, when it comes to Bible translations, I'm not going to get into it too much, because uh, in our fellowship, we understand that the, the, uh, the, the best manuscript family, the one that God has preserved, the one he's behind, is the family that's behind the New King James, and the King James. So when it comes to picking a translation, you know, there's really not much, in my opinion, there's not much to pick from. There's really two Bibles to pick from, English Bibles, the King James or the New King James, okay? But I, I think you should understand a little bit about how Bible translation works, okay? There's one uh, way of translating the Scripture. It's more of a literal translation, okay? It's called formal equivalence, all right? And what the translator is trying to do informal equivalence is to, as much as possible, translate word for word what the Bible is actually saying. So he can bring to you basically what it says in the Greek into English and leave all the interpreting up to you. Okay? And personally, I think that's the way it should be. And, and, and thank God the New King James and the King James are both formal equivalent translations. Okay? Then there's more of a dynamic equivalence translation. These would be translations like the NIV, um, maybe the New Living Translation, okay, or maybe the Good News Translation. They're more of a dynamic equivalence. What that means is the interpretation of the translator is coming into play now, okay? Because where he thinks that, that a word-for-word -word translation might be a little more wooden or harder to understand... He's going to read it what it says in the Greek, maybe a sentence in the Greek, and say, well, it says this in the sentence, so I'm just going to put it in my words in the sentence. It's called dynamic equivalence. Okay? And it becomes very dangerous because you don't know the theology of the translator. You don't know what he's bringing into place. So you have to really check what it's saying. Really check what it's saying. And one example I can give you, I mean, I, I, I read the NIV for the first five, six years of my Christian life. Okay? And it, it used the word sinful nature in there. The problem is, it takes one Greek word, the Greek word sarx, which means flesh, and it translates two English words, sinful nature, which are found nowhere in the Greek. Okay, but he's giving his understanding of what the, what Paul means when he uses the word flesh. 
wherever the writer is. When he used the word sarks, they're giving his understanding of it. And while maybe in certain instances it could be true if it's talking about an acquired sinful nature, not a sinful nature you were born with, but something you, you develop over a period of time because you're sinning the same sin over and over again, a habit, that could be true in some situations when the Greek word sarks is there, but they're using their... Once again, they're bringing their theology into perspective, and they're giving you that instead of what the Greek actually says, which is what is inspired by God. And so what I want, when I read an English Bible, I want what God inspired. And I want to leave all the hard work up to me and the Holy Spirit, Him helping me and using proper principles in order to understand what it's saying. Okay, Instead of letting someone else try to explain it to me. It's almost like having a commentary and a Bible put together. But I don't want that. I want God's thoughts. I want God's words. I don't want man's words and man's thoughts. I want God's words and God's thoughts. Okay? And then there's one that's even a step further out of the way. It's what we'll call the paraphrase. Okay? This would be, uh, I don't even want to call them Bibles. They're not really Bibles. Uh, the message. It's, it's really more of a poetic license on the scriptures. Really, you're getting basically what the man thinks. It's really just a commentary dressed up like a Bible. Is really all it is. Very dangerous. Very, I, I, I couldn't ever in good conscience do that with God's Word if I was the person doing it. I'd feel the judgment and wrath of God upon myself if I did something like that. This is Such a person doesn't hold God's Word in very high esteem, if you ask me, to, to even call it the Bible. Now, if you want to say this is a commentary upon the Scriptures, then fine, call it that. But don't call it a Bible. It's not a Bible. Okay, and it's, it's, it's really, for those people who don't understand the things we're talking about right now, it's really deceptive to them. Because the message is a very, a, a very popular, uh, paraphrase. You know, I, I bought one at one point in time, because there was this big craze about it, and I was in college at a point in time, and, and in theological or, or the educational circuits, it's, it became a very popular thing at one point in time. The guy who wrote it, Eugene Peterson, he was a professor at a college, I think in the uh, Northwest. And so I got it, but I, I just didn't like it at all. I really had a hard time with some of the, the verses I had memorized and went to. I like, that's not what it says. And it was a really hard time for me to do that. And so those are really the three different ways of, of having a Bible come into the English. You have the, the di- formal equivalence, the dynamic equivalence, and then the paraphrase. Uh, then there's, let's talk about chapter and verse divisions for a second, because this is going to come into play when it comes to you interpreting your Bible properly. Now, chapter and verse divisions weren't put in until the Geneva Bible of 1560. So they're fairly new when it comes to the scope of history. What's You gave me some ideas. What do you think are some good reasons why we should have chapter and verse divisions? What, Tracy? So we can locate certain verses or passages uh, by just referencing? Right. If I say Matthew 5.48, you know exactly where it is. I don't have to say Matthew about uh, a third of the way through, second paragraph, third line... You just know by number. Bam, bam. It's all universal across the board, right? Yeah. What else? What's some other good reasons for it? Helps them memorize? Yes. Very good. Helps them memorize. Anything else? Helps you remember where it is. Okay. Yep. That's good. Yes? Yes, it could do that. That's right. 
Now, certain books of the Bible are, are called historical narrative. I mean, it's telling a story, telling, it's recording what had happened in history. Go ahead, brother. I'm sorry, I was going to say that you can take types of books and lump them together. Yes, yes, that's you good. Said the historical narrative, I said, oh, yeah, we're, we're kind of lumping types of books together, too. So. Right, right. But the historical narrative, sometimes you'll have stories, and it helps you to break up the stories. You know, so if you have, if you're reading through First Kings, it helps you separate different stories that are in there, hopefully by chapter and verse divisions. So that can help too. You know, you also have in your Bible something called subheadings. That's not in the Greek. It's not in the Hebrew. Something that the translator put there in order to help you. And it can be helpful, and sometimes it can be detrimental as well, depending on how much influence you put on it, or how much, you know, stock you put in those subheadings. Now what can be some bad things when it comes to chapter and verse divisions, Sean? Very good. Yes. It, it, it separates, let's just take Romans, for example. It separates it in chapters and verses where sometimes he's got a pretty long, drawn argument that extends past three or four chapters. And so you think in your mind, okay, well, I'm going to start chapter at the beginning of uh, chapter 10. And you think, well, that's where his thought starts. That's not where his thought starts. His thought starts a couple chapters before, maybe. Or maybe you uh, isolate Romans 7, 14 through 25. You think, what? Well, that's the normal Christian life. But you don't go back to Romans 6, you don't go through to Romans 8. So, so there can be problems with that. So chapter and verse divisions are helpful because it helps us find things, helps us memorize things, helps us have a, uh easier way of teaching things through. Okay, But uh, it, it doesn't help a lot of times when it comes to interpreting things properly. And that's why I bring it up. With this, this in mind. What else, what else, uh, could be detrimental? Yeah, Sean. Uh, proof texting probably to a, especially a newer believer who just is learning from somebody and they just say, this is written to you, this is for you, like, uh, this is Jeremiah 29. 11. 11. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. The whole context has nothing to do with you or I. Right. Right. And that's, and that's another thing that comes into play with Jeremiah 29, 11, and 13 is that understanding who the original audience was. Okay. Which we'll get to here in a minute. But yes, it does, it, it 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 promotes isolationism when it comes to verses. You'll take one verse, say, "Well, this is what it says," but you don't read the verses before it or verses after it to find out what it's actually saying. Okay. So it may, it, there's there's some good things and there's some bad things when it comes to uh, chapter and verse separations. Anything else you can think of? Okay, so we've talked about what hermeneutics is. Okay. We talked about some of these things, and now let's let's talk about what hermeneutics is not. Um, I know it's a big word, and you have to spell it out for you and everything like that, but it's not hard. Okay, hermeneutics is not hard, but it does take work on your part. Going back to Second Timothy two fifteen, showing yourself approved unto God, that you may not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Hermeneutics is not only for Greek scholars. Even though it's a Greek word being transliterated in English, it's not only for Greek scholars. Hermeneutics is not only for Bible professors or Bible college students. Hermeneutics is not only for pastors. Hermeneutics does not exclude uh, young children or young men and women. It does not exclude you. Uh, hermeneutics is not boring even though it may sound boring just by the word itself. Um, 
Hermeneutics is not saying, this verse means this to me. Not saying that. Okay? The point of hermeneutics, we'll get to more in depth here in a minute, is to figure out what the original writer was saying to the original audience and then making application. That's the point of it. Um, and hermeneutics, once again, like I just said, is not making application before you understand what it's saying. Okay? You're going to end up making the wrong application sometimes when you do that, if you try to make an application of a scripture before you understand what it's saying. Okay, so here's, here's some prerequisites before you begin to interpret the Bible properly. One, you must be teachable. You must be humble. You must be willing to change your position if you find out that it's wrong. You must be willing to go to the point where you're willing to be called a heretic by some people. And I'll tell you this, when you understand what the Bible teaches, most of the world, including the Christian world, is not going to agree with you. They're not going to agree with you. And you have to be willing to risk that, to put that on the altar and sacrifice that, your good name or reputation, in order to interpret the Bible properly. If you're not willing to do that, then just forget about it. Just forget about it. You have to be teachable, humble, willing to change your position, and willing to be considered wrong in the eyes of other people, to the point where they call you a heretic. When it comes to studying the Bible, you are constantly continuing to learn. What does the word disciple mean? Learner. Learner. That's right. It comes from the Greek word mathetes. It means a learner. So are you still a disciple of Jesus? When will you cease to be a disciple of Jesus? That's right, when you stop learning. So, are, are, and what John said is true as well. You shouldn't cease being a disciple of Jesus. You should be continuing to learn. So, you should never come to this point where I say, oh, I figure that passes out. I'm good to go. I can stop now. No, it's a continual thing. I've been a Christian for almost 16 years now. And I'm still learning, man. There have been times I thought, well, hey, I conquered that part. Didn't conquer it. I went a little deeper. and went a little deeper. and went a little deeper. It's, it's like that rabbit hole. It never ends, man. just keeps on going. Because God is infinite, you can go deeper with him. And he's the one who wrote this. He's the one who inspired this. So you're continuing to be a disciple. You're continuing to be a learner of the teacher. Okay? Another prerequisite. Besides being teachable, humble, willing to change position, willing to be called a heretic, and constantly learning, it's a lifelong thing, you have to be objective. You have to be willing to put aside what you may have learned, or presuppositions that you may have that could be wrong. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I became a Christian, I was part of the Nazarene Church. Okay, They taught that you could lose your salvation. All right? People started to challenge me on it. I couldn't back it up with Scripture. I had a hard time with that. I was still a pretty new Christian at that point in time. So I started to read a book by a guy named Charles Stanley. He taught me once they've always saved. I believed it. I wasn't being a Berean. Okay? When I started to be a Berean, I started to look at the Scriptures for myself and study on these things and be objective, willing to change, willing to put aside my presuppositions. Because what I was doing was I was taking the Bible, and reading through my once save, always save glasses. And I began to read every verse through those glasses. 
But when I took those glasses off, I said, you know what, let me check these Bible verses I've been reading that I say support this position and put them aside for a second. And let me just read the verse that they say I support the other side of the equation that you can lose your salvation. And let's see what I come up with. And I changed my mind on it. I was willing to change my position on it. And that's what you need to be willing to do as well. You have to be willing to put in the work. This will require lots of reading and lots of studying. Not just one or the other, but both. And there is a difference. Reading is just reading it through. Because you want to get the overall thing the Bible is saying. The overall story, the overall objective, the overall message of what God is saying. And in doing so, it's going to help you to interpret the Bible in light of the rest of the Bible. So if you haven't read the Bible all the way through yet, I would encourage you to get a reading plan and read it all the way through. Uh, I have a friend, uh, his name is Jose Munez, and he, he has a plan that you can read the Bible through three or four times in a year. If you read so many chapters today. Not impossible to do. Especially young people who don't have uh, a wife or children to take care of. Or you have less children, or you you know you don't have the other things that some of the other adults may have responsibilities they may have. You have a lot of time, and remember, you're going to give an account for the time you have. You're going to give an account for the time you have. You know, if a man with ten children and a wife and a job and a ministry, if he reads the Bible and he reads ten chapters a day, what excuse do you have if you don't have those responsibilities? What excuse do you have? Because you're spending too much time on Facebook or playing games or whatever it may be. Those things aren't important in light of eternity. Okay, I mean, if you're doing ministry things, that's, that's a little bit different. But we always need to keep our, our time into perspective here and use it wisely. You know, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Okay, so it's going to require for you to put in the work. And this work is so important, like we read earlier. Not putting in the work could cost your soul later on. Could cost, could cost you to be deceived. Could cause you to depart from the faith. End up in hell in the end. So it's very important. Not only that, but who you're teaching. You don't have to be a pastor. You're, you're, you share things with people. I know you do. I used to tell people that one saved what we saved was right. And I convinced them of it. Because they couldn't back up their position, and I thought I could. There's people out there who have the wrong position that are good debaters. They're good at arguing their position. So you need to be good at arguing your position. You need to be good at backing up your position with the Word of God. There's a man named James White, who's a Calvinist. Very good at arguing his position. Very good debater. And a lot of stuff he debates on, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, he does a good, good job at it. You know, but when it comes to him debating Calvinism and a lot of other false doctrines he teaches, he's good at debating them, he just doesn't have the truth. And so you need to be careful so you can understand these things for yourself. It requires time. Another prerequisite of, of involving yourself in interpreting the Bible properly is not to throw your stake down too soon. I've seen it happen so many times in the last 16 years of my life. People will hold one position... Someone will come along and tell them about something else, and they'll poof, throw a stake down. Someone's come along, oh no, it's over here. Someone's come along, oh no, it's over here. Poof. Don't throw your stake down too soon. Think about it. Pray about it. Read about it. Look into it before you throw your stake down, because you look like a fool if you do that. You're like the one who's been tossed to and fro with every wave and wind. I've seen so many people do that. 
And a lot of times these people who do that, they end up apostatizing from the faith. They just go away from the faith, become an atheist. Because they've been twisted and turned, not in the word themselves. They're just letting all the ears from the, from the wind and the air just teach them whatever they want to teach them, and they get all confused. Yeah, that's what I mean by it. taking a position. Say, yep, that's right. No, no, that, no, that's right. No, that's right. You know, it's just be, it looks confusing. It's confusing for you, but it's confusing for the people around you too, who may be looking up to you and think, "Well, he, he believes that, or she believes that." She, you know, I look up to her or him, so I'm going to leave it too. And after a while, you're not believable anymore. So don't throw your stake down too soon. Don't jump on popular interpretations. Chances are, if a certain interpretation of the Word of God is popular, it's probably not true. Not every time, but it's probably not true. Okay. You have to be able to let the Bible define the words that it uses. A lot of times people come to the Bible and they have their presuppositions. We all have them. We all are raised differently by different parents in different parts of the U.S., with different culture and different whatever it may be. And, and oftentimes we'll bring those things to the Word of God. And you have to allow the Bible to define Bible terms. One example is the word dead. Calvinists will say being spiritually dead means you have no free will. That's what they say it means. I ask them to prove that from the Bible, they can't do it. But that's, that's part of the foundation of their doctrine. Of, of how they interpret the Bible. So they go to the Ephesians 2 and it says that you were, you were, you were dead in your sins. And they say, well, that means you had no free will. And then God made you alive. And now you have free will. But please show me how you get that from the Bible. But what they did with it, they took their, their presuppositions that the Bible means that when it says dead, and they brought it to the scripture and they have this theological system that comes from it. So you have to allow the Bible to define itself. And of course, another prerequisite is this. You have to be willing to apply what you learn after you understand it. If you're not willing to do that, it's going to become a lot of dead information in your brain, and it's going to damn you in the end. Because God will judge you according to your knowledge, according to your understanding. If you understand a passage and you aren't willing to obey it, now you're in danger. Now you made it worse for yourself. So those are some of the prerequisites uh, when it comes to these things. Okay, so here's here's some hermeneutic principles that you can use uh, to help you understand God's word properly. And I'm not going to really get into examples of these uh, right now. I'm just going to kind of uh, give them to you and talk about them a little bit. Um, but hopefully next time we'll go through examples of these and how, how to use these properly so you can understand them a little better. Of course, the first uh, principle of hermeneutics is recognizing that it is God's word you are interpreting. Now, what does that mean? That means there can't be any contradictions. That means it's perfect. And it's preserved. That's what it means. And so you're handling it properly as if you're dealing with God's word. Not as if you're dealing with some book from Harry Potter or some book from J.K. Rowling, you're, you're dealing with God's Word. So you're handling with that kind of reverence. And if you handle that kind of reverence, it'll stop you from saying, it says this, it says this, it says this, and just throwing it out there. Like, you know when you really haven't studied it out properly. 
So that's the first, that's the foundation of hermeneutics. Number two, read, read, and reread. Read, read, and reread. Okay? You need to read and you need to study God's Word. We talked about reading it, how you want to read it through and read it through. But then you also need to take time to study passages. You know, study what Romans 6 through 8 is talking about. Study what Romans 9 through 11 is talking about. Study these passages of the Bible. Take a book of the Bible and say, you know, I'm going to study Matthew this time. I'm going to study 1 Timothy. I'm going to study, you know, Titus. And really study it out and see what it says. Break it down and say, you know what, I think Paul overall and Titus talking about this, 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 and this. And then break it down and those groups say, well, he's talking about ex- explicitly this, specifically this, and break it down so you can understand what he's saying in that one letter. And if you do it like that, you're going to be studying God's Word all your life. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. So read, read, and reread. And of course, you're studying as well. Number three, identify the, lit- the type of literature that you are reading. Okay? Is what you're reading a historical narrative? Is it explaining something that happened in the past? Like Exodus, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Gospels? Those are historical narratives. They're telling an account of what happened. Okay, Are you uh, dealing with poetry, like the Psalms, like Song of Solomon? Um, are you dealing with wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs? These are all going to be interpreted differently. For example, the historical narrative. I read the account of David with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, is that meant to be interpreted in this way? That is an example for how you should live as a Christian. No. Is it meant to be interpreted this way? That's God's commandment for you to do the same thing. It's just telling a story of what happened. Of course, the rest of the Bible that teaches things tells you not to do such things. Let me see when Nathan the prophet came along, he rebuked him for it. Okay? Poetry. There's going to be things in poetry symbolic. That's not literal. Okay? Wisdom literature are meant to be taken as general principles for life. Then there's teaching letters. This is probably the easiest to deal with when it comes to interpreting, because you're going to interpret, for the most part, literally. Literally. You go to any of Paul's letters, that's teaching literature. You go to what Jesus says in the Gospels, that's teaching literature. Okay? And you can find teaching literature within these other kind of literatures at times as well. Because the Gospels are historical narratives. But within it is teaching. Okay? Then you also have apocalyptic literature, which is talking about the end times. There's lots of symbolic stuff in that. Read the book of Revelation a couple times. See if you have a hard time with it. When I was a two or three year old Christian, I I read it through ten times in a couple months. I was like, man, am I ever going to understand this thing? That's what I thought to myself. But I didn't realize it's apocalyptic literature. It's not all. It's barely any literalness in there, and I have to understand these Old Testament books first. And then I wouldn't have had a hard time with it. So that, that's the third: understanding the literature you're reading. The fourth one is the historical context. Okay, when it was written, why it was written, who it was written by, and who it was written to. That's the historical context. When it was written. Why it was written, who it was written by, who it was written to. It's going to help you understand things sometimes. If you understand the, the Ephesian church was mostly Jewish at the beginning, 
And you see that in the book of Acts, if you read through the book of Acts. And then it also included Gentiles. Ephesians 1, all the way through verse 14, is not going to bother you. You're not going to come away as a Calvinist after reading that verse, that chapter, because you understand what the, who the we, the us, and the you is talking about when Paul is writing it. Okay? So historical context is important. Literary context, that's the fifth one. And this is how literary contexts work. If I take a verse of the Bible, I'm going to read that verse. If I want to understand what it's saying, I'm going to read the verses around it. Then I'm going to read through the whole book, maybe, to understand what it's saying. And then I'm going to go to books written by the same person to see how he said other things as well. And then I'm going to read through that, that testament of the Bible to understand it properly. And then in, in light of the whole Bible. See how it kind of goes out like that in bigger bigger circles? The verse, the passage, the book, books written by other people, the, other, the same author, okay? And then that testament, and then the whole Bible. Because remember, the whole foundation of hermeneutics is what? God wrote it. God is the inspiration behind it. Okay? So it's not going to contradict itself. So that's the literary context. you got the verse, the passage, the book, other books by the same writer, the Testament, and then the whole Bible. Okay? When you're interpreting with a literary context. Number six. If you are in the New Testament, and you see Old Testament verses quoted in the New Testament, go back to where it was in the Old Testament and see what it says there. And do the same thing. Verse, passage, book, other books written by the same person, the Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, because the Apostle Paul, when he's writing Romans 9, he's not stripping the verses he quotes from their original context. Okay? The same context that was in the Old Testament is what he's bringing into the New Testament to, to teach something new in the New Testament. Alright? So when you see Old Testament verses quoted, go back to see what they were saying in context. Okay, the seventh principle is this. If the literal sense makes perfect sense, take no other sense lest you make nonsense. Like that one? Basically what it means is this. If it can be taken literally, take it literally. God's not speaking in coding here, in code words here. He's speaking to us. If the literal sense of the passage you're reading makes perfect sense, take no other sense lest you make nonsense. A lot of people want to interpret the Bible like an allegory. It's all this big hidden message God is trying to tell us. No, he's being real direct with us. He's being real direct with us. And if everything was just allegory and symbolic, guess how many different interpretations we would have? As many as you wanted to have. We get back to what I said before. This verse means this to me. Tracy says, this verse means this to me. John says, this verse means this to me. Brother Ray says, well, that means this to me. Well, I guess we're all right, right? Is that the way the Bible works? It's not the way it works. God is trying to say a specific thing to a specific people in time, and then it has an application to you and me as well, because God transverses time, transcends time. Okay? He's trying to speak to us as well. Not only, but just because there's, uh, the Bible is mostly literal does not mean there aren't parables, that there isn't poetry, and there isn't hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It means exaggerate. Go ahead, Hannah. Yes, exaggeration to prove a point. Okay? 
is trying to is still trying to make a literal point though, even in the exaggeration. You know, if I if I say uh, to Emily, you're always putting your thumb in your mouth. Do I really mean that she 24 hours a day, seven days a week has always had her thumb in her mouth? No, I mean she's has it in her mouth too much and needs to stop it. That's what I mean by that. You know, if Jesus says, if your eye calls you to sit and pluck it out, is he really telling you to get a spoon and pluck your eye out? No, he's saying take extreme measures to get the sin out of your life that you're sitting with your eye. Okay? So that's hyperbole. There's parables. There's poetry. There's apocalyptic language. I just talked about it. Also symbolic language. But all these things, okay, I want you to imagine a big caravan or a 15 pasture van. And all these different literary techniques are in this. There's hyperboles in there, metaphors in there, similes in there, you know, parables in there, poetry's in there. But guess who's driving the van? Mr. Literal is driving the van. Okay? So when you come to a, a, a passage or a verse that's hyperbole or parable, Mr. Literal that you know of all these other verses that are literal, they have to drive where that's going to go. Okay? Mr. Parable is not driving Mr. Literal. Mr. Literal is driving Mr. Hyperbole, not the other way around. So when someone goes to Jesus, pluck an eye, I say, well, he means literal there. But is that what God really wants to do according to the rest of Scripture? No, of course not. Of course not. So Mr. Literal is always driving the van. No matter how many literary techniques are found in the Word of God, Mr. Literal drives it. Which brings me to my next point of... Uh, Interpret unclear verses in light of clear verses. Okay? Or interpret verses that aren't literal in, in light of verses that are literal. Okay? So that would be, that would be point number nine. And of course, which, which leads me to point number ten, that you're letting, you're letting scripture itself interpret scripture. Okay? Scripture interprets scripture. Eight is there are parables, poetry, hyperbole, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so those, those are those are ten, ten main ones, and then here's some side issues that I, I wanted to, to address with you when it comes to interpreting the Bible properly. Okay, uh, the use of Greek dictionaries, which are called lexicons. Okay, hopefully next week we'll get into that, and understanding grammar, uh, English grammar, and maybe some Greek grammar as well. Okay, if you think there is a contradiction in God's word, you're wrong. That's all there is to it. You're wrong. And what you need to do is study it out some more. And this will happen a lot when you're first studying the Bible because you'll, you, you don't have the whole counsel of God. You haven't read through the whole thing yet. So you come to this one little verse, man, what does that mean there? What's it saying there? You know, that, that women are saved through childbearing. What does that mean? Does that mean if I can't have any children, I'm going to hell? Does that mean if I'm single, I'm going to hell until I get married to having babies? You know, so you have to get into this to understand what it's saying. That might be a little easier example than understanding the whole of Scripture. You can probably just understand what Timothy's saying, what Paul is saying to Timothy there, understand the, uh, what it's saying. But there's some Scriptures, you have to understand the whole counsel of God to be able to understand exactly what God is saying there. And, you, and, and what I recommend for you to do is to write a little question mark next to it. Boop, a little question mark. And then as you read through Scripture, you can go back and say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand what he's saying here because I've read the whole counsel of God's word now. That's, that's the way it works. So if you think, if you think you've stumbled upon a contradiction, keep reading. Yes, Brother Josh. Um, like the example you give, another example would be like, uh, 
Right. 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 Yeah, baptism, dealing with that issue, understanding the whole counsel of God when it comes to that. Uh, understanding what, stay on the Catholic issue for a second, understanding what, what uh, Jesus means when he says, you are the, the rock, and on this I will build the church, understand what he means there. You know, it's in Matthew 16, but you have to have the whole counsel of God instead of isolating those verses, going back to that chapter and verse division, isolating verses and saying, this is, this is a doctrine. Now this is a doctrine now. I've isolated this verse and this is a doctrine. You know, people might say, well, um, you know, they'll come to all different kinds of positions because they do those kind of things. So you want to keep on reading if you think it's a contradiction. You also want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Because guess what? He knows. He's the writer of it. You know, I've given this example before, I think, but you know, when I was in, in college, we would read poetry. And uh, you know, the teacher would say, well, come back tomorrow and, and tell me what you think it means. And, of course, there wasn't the right answer because we didn't have the poet in the class with us. We're reading some old dead guy's poetry. okay? Uh, but when it comes to the Bible, you have the author living inside of you. So if you don't understand a, a verse, you should go keep reading what, he sa- what he's already said, and also ask him to help you. okay? And of course, as Josh was saying earlier this week, if you ask for wisdom, and you don't doubt, God will give it to you. He will give it to you. Okay? After you've done those two things, if you still don't seem to understand what the Bible is saying, seek out godly counsel. Okay? Now, if you're a married woman, the first person you seek out is your husband. Okay? That's the first one, person you seek out. After you've sought the Holy Spirit and sought the Scripture yourself, seek out your husband. And the first per- thing he's going to do, if he doesn't know the answer, he's going to seek out God and seek out the Scriptures himself. Then if he can't find the answer, then he can find someone else who he thinks can give him the answer. Okay, or pastor, elder, some other authority on the subject. Uh, children, your first person to go through is your parents, your mother and your father. Ask them first. After you've sought the Holy Spirit and sought the Word of God for yourself. Okay? And then after you've done all that, if, if you still can't figure out what it's saying, then I, w- I would say on a limited use, you could use commentaries. Okay? On a limited use. But most commentaries out there have an Augustine... Gnostic, Calvinistic flavor to them. Okay, it's like they took a, a bunch of salt and the cap was off and it just kind of fell off on top of the commentary. Just a bunch of Calvinism salt just fell on top of the commentary. That's kind of the way it is. You have to kind of pick and choose, you know, how, you know, what they're saying if they're actually right or not. And so you would be very careful with commentaries. Some ones I would possibly recommend on a limited use would be John Wesley's uh, Notes on the Whole Bible. It's not real in-depth, real basic. It just has notes in the Bible. Um, a guy named Adam Clark, who is also kind of a Wesleyan kind of guy, around St. Thomas Wesley. His is more in-depth, and it might make you fall asleep sometimes. Um, and then Albert Barnes, he's pretty good, too. Okay, so those are really the only three that I could, I could recommend in any kind of way, shape or form. But only in a limited use. Um, another tool that I would use, besides commentaries and, and Greek dictionaries is something called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Okay, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge basically goes through every verse of the Bible, and it'll take key words from each verse, and it'll give you other verses that use that same key word. It's like this big reference system. And if I use any tool, besides Greek lexicons and understanding the Greek for myself, that's the tool I use the most. A lot more than I use commentaries. Okay, a lot more. And you can get it in book form, or you can get it in electronic form. 
and it's probably pretty cheap. I have it on my, my Bible software. It came with it. There's an old one, and there's a new one. The old one was the original guy who wrote it, and the new one is another guy who took his stuff and updated it and added more stuff to it. Okay? And lastly, uh, I said again, I can't emphasize this enough, you need to read, study, and pray some more. You need to keep on doing it. This is a lifelong thing. And like Second Timothy says, you need to study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that need not be ashamed. Okay? And that's what you're going to have to deal with when it comes to interpreting the Bible properly. So I've given you some uh, hermeneutic principles, um, some prerequisites before you begin to study the Bible. And uh, hopefully you see the importance of this, uh, not only for yourself, but for others who might hear you speak about the Scriptures, you know, whether it's one-to-one or in the open air or on Facebook, wherever it may be, you're speaking these things be very important to understand these things properly. So hopefully next week, these uh, I gave you ten principles of hermeneutics, and then I gave you some other pointers uh, besides that. Hopefully these ten, I'll give you some examples of each next week, so you can see what I'm talking about. And uh, I might bring... Uh, all, all my Greek lexicons are in electronic form, so I'm not going to be able to bring those, but... Um, you know, of course, before you use a Greek dictionary, what's what's the first thing you need to know before you can use an English dictionary? English. ABC. That's right, the alphabet. You don't need to know Greek to know that use a Greek lexicon, but you need to know the Greek alphabet. Okay, otherwise you can't look anything up. You know, if you don't know that B comes after A, how are you gonna look something up? You know, if you don't know Z's the last letter in alphabet, you're gonna be looking all over that that huge dictionary trying to find a Zulu, the word Zulu. And you're not gonna be able to find it. Okay, so you need to know the Greek alphabet, and that's really easy to learn. I mean, it, there's a lot of the the way the alphabet looks, the Greek alphabet looks. A lot of it looks a lot like English words, so it help, helps you to remember it. I mean, the first two letters of the Greek alphabet are, are alpha and beta, A B alphabet alpha beta. That's where we get the word alphabet from. Okay, alpha beta, and so you, you, it'd be good to learn the Greek. Uh, alphabet at least, so you could get a Greek dictionary and begin to look it up. Now, that's not necessary. You could never learn Greek, never use a Greek dictionary and still understand what the Word of God says to you. Because I think that the English translations we have from the King James and New King James are good translations. Okay, It's coming from someone who does know the Greek a little bit. Um, so, uh, these, are, these are some principles. And, and maybe, uh, I don't have an electronic version of the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, but I have another book that's similar to that that I haven't used very much. Maybe I'll bring that in next week with me. And uh, same with commentaries. I have some commentaries, but they're mostly Calvinistic. Uh, the commentaries I've read through the most, believe it or not, have been Calvinistic commentaries, which has kind of helped me to refute the nonsense that they, they support. So, okay, so let's open the floor up to questions, objections, or things you want to add to what's been said. Okay, you have that. Oh, great. Great. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's right. You have a hard copy. That's right. That's right. That's good. And one other thing I didn't mention, I, I forgot to mention, was a concordance. Concordance is good because sometimes you think, where's that verse that, I, that I, I read a while back? And you'll remember maybe a couple of key words in the verse. You go to concordance which lists every single word in your Bible, every single occurrence of that word in your Bible, you get that, 
you can go right to that verse and find it right away. It's very easy to help you find those scriptures that you, you forgot where they are or where they may be. Yes, Josh. What hermeneutics is not, okay. Let's see here. Get back to my notes here. Oh, it's, um, hermeneutics is understanding what the Bible says first and then making application. Understanding what the original writer was saying to the original audience. And after you've done that, then you make application to yourself. That's the whole point of hermeneutics. But Sean? So I wanted an example, I guess. I think I talked about it next week. I think the general principle on hermeneutics would be whenever you're talking with somebody, you're doing the same thing. So when you run into the world, they're going to try and say, well, there's multiple interpretations. Like, So I can multiply and interpret your words right now. Right. Talking about dogs, cats, right. dogs. I don't know. Right. You, just, you can show them the absurdity of saying, in modern language, we use all these same things. Usually we don't even think about them. Though. They're just doing the same thing. Yeah, they don't, they don't do that with anything else, really. When it comes to a book where it's trying to, it has a literal form to it, they're not saying, well, it could mean this, could mean that, could mean this. No, they said it means this. They know what it means. They're just trying to twist the Bible because they don't, they want it to be ambiguous. They want it to be something you can't understand or you can't apply to your life. Um, and when, when people say that to me, I say, well, give me an example. I say, interpret, repent, or perish for me. Please interpret that wrong for me, the wrong way. Please interpret, go and sin no more. How can that be twisted? And so when people say, I mean, I'll ask them to give me an example, and they can't give an example. They're just saying that as a general rule for themselves because they don't want to read it, they don't want to understand it. They don't want to stop sinning, that's right. You know, so you, you can, and then you can throw out some verses that are obviously literal and, and say that. And well, please, please misinterpret that for me. And they can't. They can't do that either. Yes. Yes, Bill Tracy. I've got another tool that I've been using recently is uh, etymology, mm-hmm. because the uh, English language has changed over the years, and uh, even the the words that are in the New King James, like impute, uh, doesn't mean the same thing as when it was originally put in the King James, where the New King James gets it from. Right. So even in the New King James, it's important to check up etymology also. Because you say, well, you look at the Greek word and say, well, the Greek word means this, but I think the word impute means this, and it doesn't seem to match up. Mm-hmm. What's well, because the definition that we have of impute today is not very accurate to what it was back then. Right. So etymology is really important. Yeah. And, of course, if people try to play those games with you when it comes to English words, the, the goal, obviously, of the Bible is to go back to the original language and see what the word, the Greek word behind it or Hebrew word behind it means. Because, uh, once again, we're dealing with translators. And when it comes to inspiration and preservation, remember, it does not extend to translations. It extends only to the original writings, which was in Greek and Hebrew. Okay, That's what we're extending it to. Um, so when it comes to translations, that's why it's good to know the Greek alphabet and be able to look up, Greek, look up words and do keyword studies for yourself. Sometimes it'll help you. Um, now, you have to know Greek grammar to be able to read it and understand it and translate it. That's different, completely different. And most Christians will never do those things. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We all only have so much time in a day. 
I try my best to go back and to review the Greek I learned for a couple of semesters and to continue to study, but I find a difficult time find time to do that myself. I'd li- I wish I had four more hours a day. I'd probably devote it to that, you know, but I just don't have the time for it, unfortunately. But if, if any of you are interested in that, I, I can recommend a Greek course you can go through as a beginner thing, okay? I can recommend things. There's a guy named uh, William Mounts, and you can buy it off of his website, which is technia, T-E-K-N-I-A, technia.com. I actually have a set myself. And his books are, aren't too expensive. Um, his books aren't the ones I used when I was in college, but his books are good, I think. So, yes? Just again, just so everybody understands what etymology means, it just means word origin. Yeah. So when, when I say etymology, I'm just talking about the origin of the word. And when you look that up, uh, like an etymology dictionary, like on the Internet, they'll show you over the years how the word has changed its meaning. At different time periods, right? So it gives you a better scope of that word. An example of one you told us the other day, sincere. Yeah, sincere. That comes from the Latin. Sin means without. Seer means wax. So this means without wax. And the meaning of that is, is a cracked pot had wax to cover up the cracks, so you couldn't tell that it was a cracked pot. And a good pot had no cracks, had no wax, so it was a sincere pot without cracks. So that's where the word sincere comes from. You learn that through etymology studies. Uh, word word origin is what it means. To yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> and everyone wants people who are sincere, too. That, that's actually a good definition of sincere. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Just going to dive into that kind of stuff. What was the uh, original definition of impute? To reckon, to account. Yeah. Which is what logizomai means. Right. What the Greek, Greek word. Means. That's why I, I do etymology studies, is because when you do the etymology study, you say, oh, well, what it meant back then matches up with the Greek definition pretty much exactly. So mm-hmm. it really should, to me, I, I find a lot of value in it. Yeah. It doesn't, that definitely doesn't mean transfer. No, it doesn't mean sure. transfer at all. That's a new, modern uh, understanding. I think it probably got brought into being because of Calvinism. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in my study of trying to find out where that word goes back to, I think it goes back to Luther. Because I was reading a biography by, about Luther, and he began to talk about that. He didn't use the word impute, but he began to talk about how Christ lived out the righteous life for him, but he didn't have to. And that he was, he was saying as if it was an astonishing discovery, as if he was the first one to discover it. Remember, this guy is a guy who's who had read Augustine. He was an Augustinian monk. So Augustine didn't come up with it. And Luther predated Calvin, who was older than Calvin. So it's probably Luther's the one who started it. But you know, Luther is Lutheranism is just like Calvinism in a lot of ways. And they all have their, you know, foundation in Augustinianism, which is, has a foundation in Gnosticism, which according to first John is from the devil. So
craziest thing I ever heard that um, Jesus has has believed for us. Right. Well, you turn around and say, so when you sin, who sins for you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if you sin, so yeah, well, he'd be actually like, he became a sin. It's a young man who uh, I had a discussion with on Facebook at one point in time, and he just was way out in left field concerning doctrine or theology. And I tried to reason, and he wouldn't reason about it. He was accusing me of things that weren't true. And recently he said to somebody, um, you know you've fallen from grace if when you sin you feel guilt and condemnation. He said what you need to do when you sin is just declare that you've already been forgiven and that God, Christ, lived out your righteousness for you and that you're already saved. Sounds similar to what Charles Stanley said. He'd, he'd say something like, well, if, if you feel guilty or feel condemned when you sin, it's just the devil. And really, it's your God-given conscience, which Spirit. is God, or the Holy Spirit. And you're the devil. Well, that's just like, uh, almost like the sin of uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you know? Very close to that. But that's how far people will go. Instead of what First John 1, 9 says... You know, uh, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which is what it's supposed to do if you sin. Well, just, just to, you know, declare that that's, uh, that you, you know, if you, if you feel guilt and condemnation, you've fallen from grace. And just declare that, that Christ's righteousness was already laid out for you and you're good to go. So, so far some people can go on these things. No repentance, that's right. Nothing to repent of. Yeah, so it, it go, and it goes back to the etymology. It goes back to allowing the Bible words to define themselves. Okay, that's another principle you can go back to when you think about that. Josh. Okay, well, blessed be the Holy Spirit was when Jesus was doing miracles and signs and wonders, and people were saying that he was doing it by the power of the devil. Okay, so uh, saying. The working of the Holy Spirit is the working of the devil to go so far when it was so obvious to them that this could have only been God doing these things. That shows you've gone so far that you've become a reprobate. You've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you will not come back. Yes, they were doing it with full knowledge. They had seen what Jesus had done. They were accusing him falsely of things. Um, I would encourage you to go back and the Matthew series. I talked about that a little bit. You can go back and watch that video. Yeah. They actually mean it. Right. It's not a joke. Not just making a video saying, I I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like they used to do on YouTube a while back, a couple years ago. That's, uh, and although some of those people may be reprobates, but to to play around like that, but. But that context is not actually speaking about actually someone actually believing that he is doing it by. Right. The devil. Yeah, declaring as if it is true, that this is the power of the devil. Right. Right. That's how far gone they are. No way. Kind of like how when Jesus didn't speak to, um, who was it, um, whenever he was getting taken out of Herod, Herod yeah, right. how he didn't speak to him. Well, well I don't know if Herod was a bait, because Herod was actually some good question. He did talk to him a little bit. There was just at one point in time he didn't, you know, didn't say some things, but he, he did talk to him a little bit. But a reprobate, I think, is properly defined by that passage and also by Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It's impossible for them to repent. People who are once enlightened, who tasted the Holy Spirit, who, uh, and the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Um, so, obviously, there's, there's people who are still alive today, according to the Bible, who used to be Christians, and those who have never been Christians, 
who will never come to the truth or come back to the truth because of how far they've gone. You know, God's given them so much knowledge, so much patience, so much understanding. He's tried to draw them near so much, and they reject, reject, reject. They've gotten to the point where God can do nothing else for them. Yeah, I mean, the angels are an example of that. Satan, the third of the angels. They, I mean, they were in the presence of God. If you reject God at that height of knowledge of God and experience of God, what else can God do for you? Nothing he can do for you. So. Right. It's okay. If that's what you want, have it. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Anything else?